0: The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Jubigali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honor the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Nearly 80% of autistic women are misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, but every day we're learning more about this disability. So what does greater public awareness, challenging stereotypes and coping with ableist systems mean for autistic people? In this session at All About Women 2023, host and curator Dr Amy Tunig is joined by panellist Chloe Hayden. Grace Tame and Dr. Jack Denhouting to share their lived experiences with autism. Navigating questions about social situations and professional settings and what terms like masking and mimicry mean. This essential discussion explores how everyone can be part of a world that is inclusive, accessible and supportive. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in March 2023. Yama, everybody. Hello and
1: welcome. My name is Dr. Amy Tunick. For those of you who don't know me, I am a Gomori person. And before we begin, I would like to also acknowledge that we are gathered together on the lands of the Gadigal people. I pay my respects to elders, past and present, and extend that to any First Nations people in the room today. Now, there will be some difficult subject matters today that may come up in our discussions, so if you or anyone you know is in need of support, you can call Lifeline on 131114, which is a line that is free to use and available 24 hours a day. Now, it is my great privilege to introduce our panel. Joining me on stage, we have Chloe Hayden, an award-winning actor... <laughs> and disability advocate, motivational speaker, and social media influencer whose story of being different, not less, has attracted a worldwide following. She stars as Quinny in the sensational Heartbreak High, the Netflix remake of the iconic (laughs) Australian series. Her first book, Different, Not Less, a Neurodivergence Guide to Embracing Your True Self and Finding Your Happily Ever After, is out now. Next on the panel, we have the wonderful Grace Tame. Uh, Grace is a leader of positive change, founder of the Grace Tame Foundation. She is a survivor advocate for victims of sexual assault, particularly those who are abused as children. An accomplished illustrator, Yoga teacher, champion long distance runner. Grace was named Australian of the Year in 2021 and in 2022 released her first book, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. Next we have Dr. Jack Dan Houting. Jack is a research psychologist and activist working in pursuit of social justice. An emerging autism research leader, Jack believes that autism research can be most meaningful and impactful when it is conducted by and with those it is intended to serve autistic people. In late 2019... Jack made their TEDx debut with a talk that has since gone viral with well over 1.2 million views. Proudly queer, Jack shares their life with their equally neurodivergent partner, an enthusiastic Labrador, a deaf rescue cat, and a disgruntled bearded dragon. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming this super panel. So nearly 80% of autistic women and people assigned female at birth are misdiagnosed or go undiagnosed. Everyone on this panel, myself included, are actually autistic peoples. For me, diagnosis meant gaining a better understanding of my inner and outer worlds, and it led me to resources to support me to be my authentic autistic self. To open our panel this afternoon, I'd like to ask each panelist about being diagnosed. That moment where you received and accepted that you are actually autistic. So Grace, if we can start with you. How old were you when you were diagnosed and what was that process like for you?
2: (laughs) It's quite funny. I
1: was 20 when I was
2: diagnosed. I was seeing a psychologist. I'd been seeing her for about five years. I was introduced to her the day that I disclosed uh, the experience of child sexual abuse to to my high school. And so she was quite familiar with me. And one day, I think as just a a means of cheering me up or an attempt to cheer me up, she handed me a picture book called All Cats Have Aspergers. (laughs) And on the inside of the book, on one page is a picture of a cat doing something, and then on the corresponding page is a symptom of Asperger's or autism. And I sat there and I read the book, and by the end of it, and I was in tears. And I said, well, either I'm a cat or I'm autistic. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I'm not a cat. LAUGHTER and that set the wheels in motion for quite a thorough diagnostic process that involved interviews with my primary school teachers, with members of my family, and me doing lots of tests, I suppose, filling out um, forms and um, giving information. It took about a year or so, it's interesting though, although there's no two autistic people that are the same and there's no one experience, there's no one symptom that all autistic people have, which I guess is one of the reasons why it's, it's sort of difficult for the predominant neurotype or, or um, you know, neurotypical people um, in some cases to, to sort of understand um, the experience of autism from the outside uh, if you you research autism, you'd you and you know me, you'd realise that I'm quite a typical case of autism <laughs> um, in terms of the sensory needs that I have. You know, for example, um, you know the, the reason I've got really long hair is that um, one of my sensory needs is that I'm really hypersensitive to my hair being cut. I haven't cut it in almost two years. Um, And I can hear every sound as if it's right in my ear. Um, (laughs) uh, I can't filter out background noise. I've just learned to adapt to background noises sounding like... I don't know um, if anyone has ever swum in the ocean and we go go underneath the water. I hear crabs as if they are giant crabs inside my head. (laughs) All the t- Okay, that's just me. Um, <laughs> and humming noises. So um, when I was a baby, my mother couldn't take me into the public toilets because hand dryers, the old hand dryers, Geez. were particularly loud. Um, you know, and again, these things aren't preferences. They're needs, like as if they're medical needs, like food, water, shelter for autistic people. So, you know, when people are like, oh, you know, I, I'm a bit like that too... Um, And I'm like, yes, but if um, it it was like that for everybody, they wouldn't make lawnmowers sound like that, would they? (laughs) Um,
1: That's such a great point, Grace. Those (laughs) comments, we were talking about this backstage, the four of us, are I think read as very capable to those who don't share our worlds with us and it can lead to people being very dismissing and I do, I have a lot of people make those comments up, oh I'm a bit like that. Now it makes me think of, so I'm physically disabled as well, I have a couple of pain conditions, I have invisible disability in my body. Um, it reminds me of, you know, saying to someone like myself who has to at times use mobility aids or wheelchairs saying, oh yeah, my legs get so tired sometimes too. Like, yeah, all of us experience um, tired parts of our body at times, um, but that's not the same as physically being unable to walk sometimes. And it's the same with everyone has textures and sensations that they don't like, but that's not the same as going into shutdown and it being life-preserving to address and accommodate our needs.
2: I, I often try to explain it to neurotypical people. You know, I say, okay, imagine if every day you had to only eat or you only got to eat 50% of your necessary daily intake of food, drink only 50% of your necessary um, daily intake of water and hold in 50% of your pee. <laughs> and then try to function and fulfil all of your tasks. You know, and then when you um, asked for help
1: mm. um,
2: you know, in, in a conciliatory way, you were dismissed or um, the necessary relief
1: just didn't exist. Mm. Well, working towards supporting general understanding of autism are some fantastic actually autistic researchers. And we have our very own Dr. Jackton Howding here. I say our very own. I'm claiming Jack. They're my friend. Um, (laughs) Jack and I knew each other before I was diagnosed. And um, it's so funny the way we were talking. Like I said to Jack, at what point, as someone who was an autism researcher, and autistic yourself, and you were so deep in research in this area when we started working adjacent to one another, different fields, just our offices were near each other. And um, our boss used to say I was the reason we don't have an open office because I go, bother everyone. <laughs> um, and looking back, I was like, at what point did you know I was autistic? And Jack said, oh, like, immediately? like <laughs> <laughs> yes. if you spend enough time with me, like what Grace is saying, like, no, no, I'm, I fit that prototype. But, but Jack, in your TED Talk, you reflect on your diagnosis as being a hugely positive step in your life. And you close that TED Talk on the line, I am not a tragedy. Can you tell us about your diagnosis and what it's meant for you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was identified as autistic when I was 25. Um, so a little bit later than Grace, but still, you know, early 20s, I suppose, mid-20s. Um, and it, it really was absolutely life-changing for me, um, because it gave me a, a whole new level of understanding of myself. It gave me a framework for understanding all of these experiences that I'd had. Um, and I had a framework before that for understanding my experiences, but that framework was, I'm just a bit shit. I am just like a crap person, I just can't do things that other people can do, you know, I'm just a bit useless. Um, So to have this framework of autistic was so beneficial. Um, It's much healthier to think of yourself as you know, a perfectly average autistic person than a pretty shit neurotypical person. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and that's something that that I get asked a lot when um, parents have autistic children is sort of how do I talk to my child about this? I don't want them to be labelled, you know. Um, I, I don't want them to be labelled as autistic. But the alternative for an autistic child going through life is to be labelled as the weirdo or yeah. the misfit or the freak or, like, Autistic is a much, much nicer label than any of those things. Um, The child might not know that they're autistic, but everyone around them does. And they're going to treat them differently, regardless of whether the child knows they're autistic or not.
2: Autistic is not a slur.
1: Yes. (laughs) Thank you. That is... That's a really important point. I know many people, particularly in the academy, and if you know any, if you've got any experience with higher education, it's a neurodivergence haven. Um, and I know a lot of people who are diagnosed and they will not tell their employers. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I was so late to being diagnosed was because I had a boss in my late 20s who absolutely had picked up that I was autistic and bullied me relentlessly for it. Nicknamed me dumb bunny, that's what the emails were addressed to, and told everyone, like, to treat out oh, Amy's autistic. And I remember going to my GP, and I have good good GPs like, and crazy. I think she's right, there's something wrong with me, you know, rah, 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 and my, bless my GP, said, oh, Amy, you give me great eye contact and you're very social, you're not autistic. Um, So we just teach that diagnosis can about four years down the road and mine ended up coming up to one of my children were autistic and I basically ruined the first session because I said, yep, they're normal, yep, no, their eating patterns are normal. Second session, I did something very autistic in front of the psychiatrist and he just stopped and went, yeah, we need to start again. And I'm going to need details of what you call normal. And by the end of it, we were both sitting there going like, oh, okay, we're both autistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it can be scary because you are infantilized and patronised and I'm only confident speaking about it now because I've got the PhD, I've got full-time employment and I live in a way where I can ask for accommodations and not feel like my access to events and invitations are under threat. But Chloe, you have an experience that's different to to our, our three in being early 30s and in 20s. You were 13 when you were formally diagnosed. Can you share with us what it means for you to have carried that diagnosis through adolescence and into adulthood?
4: I think, I mean, obviously being diagnosed at such a young age is an absolute privilege because despite having to go through 13 years of I'm not like anyone else and why am I here and I I feel like I'm a glitch in the system, it's only 13 years opposed to 30 years or I met someone recently who was 85 when they were diagnosed. Um, So I'm in an incredibly privileged position to be, having only been 13, Um, And also to have had parents who, from the get-go, I used to be called um, a quirky little genius child. That was my nickname by my parents. That wasn't my nickname from the outside community. My nickname in the outside community was much worse than knowing there's young children in the audience. I will not be repeating them. Um, But even so, getting that diagnosis, I remember originally they thought I had brain damage. My English teacher called my parents and was like, hey, there's something wrong with your daughter. Maybe go get her tested. And tested was, I have a, um, a very, very naughty pony who in three months of owning her, I had eight concussions. And my mom was like, oh, we think that maybe she have had one too many concussions and maybe have brain damage. So I got MRI scans and CT scans, and obviously none of them showed anything and then ended up spending um, six weeks at a psychologist's office. And after those six weeks... Um, We walked out and my mum was bawling her eyes out and having, first of all, when you're 13 and your mum is crying, you think the Mm. entire world is ending. And Mm. when you're 13 and your mum is crying and you know it's because you've spent seven weeks at various different doctors, you think that you're the one that's making the world end. And the only thing that I thought of was, oh, okay, I'm dying. And I asked my mum, I said, hey, am I dying? And her tears stopped almost immediately. I think she realised that she had to be a mum now. And um, she said, no, you're not, di- you're not dying, you've just been diagnosed with something called autism. And I was like, okay. So I went home and I Googled it, and the only things that I found when I first Googled it were um, articles titled A Life Ruined by Autism and support groups in my area for parents with kids diagnosed and, and, and how to cure autism and adverts um, written in a horror movie format saying things like... Um, I am autism, I will ruin your marriage, and showcasing um, videos of women trying to jump off bridges because they didn't want to be with their autistic child anymore. And at that time, I was like, oh, I'm not dying. This is so much worse. Mm. And so I spent a lot of my adolescence terrified of being autistic and hiding it and writing in letters to God begging him to make me normal. Um, And it wasn't until I was probably 18 that I started reaching out to the wider community and and finding other autistic people and and learning about autism and what autism really was. Um, And I guess realizing that in a world that isn't created for you, you can create your own and you can create a world that does make sense to you. and, And there are so many incredible, brilliant autistic people out there. You just have to find them.
1: Anyway, I was going to get choked up in this panel, and if you followed my work for a while, I'm, like, anti-emotion. <laughs> but my own children are in the audience today. So are their teachers. And I was just thinking, firstly, I'm so sorry that you had that experience. And I was reflecting on the fact that, um, like, the moment that led to my children's diagnosis, my diagnosis was um, Jack babysat them. <laughs> and then Jack, Jack, I caught back and um, in the office, and of Jack was like you ever considered that your kids are autistic? (laughs) And, um, And then so my introduction to it as a parent and as someone who then also received the diagnosis myself was from this really loving actually autistic researcher who we had for a couple of years at that point been having these lengthy conversations that looking back we were info dumping and sharing special interests and... So then I wasn't scared to go into those meetings and I booked the psychiatrist thinking this is something that can help us understand ourselves better but that must have been so scary and I imagine you know I I was very privileged to have that in but I'm sure there are people with us today and people watching so you have quite a few online people and and this is being streamed where it's scary if you're, you're thinking to yourself am I autistic or is my child autistic and I was was just feeling so fortunate that my entry into knowing this about myself and my children was filled with love because I was supported by research done by autistic people and as Jack says in their TED Talk, this is not a tragedy, I am not a tragedy, my children's experience will not be a tragedy. And I love that for us. (laughs) (laughs) So it is important to recognise that while this is a powerhouse panel of high-achieving people... Who I also think were a very attractive panel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is not the whole picture of autism, neither of our lives or autism as a diagnosis. It's just a segment. And in Australia, the unemployment rate for autistic people is 31.6%. This is three times the rate of people with disability and almost six times the rate of people without disability. An organisation named Amaze did research which revealed that more than half of unemployed autistic Australians had never held a paid job despite often possessing the skills, qualifications and a strong desire to join the workforce. Dr Jack, I would love it if you could speak to these stats a little for us. I absolutely can. Info dumping
3: starts as one of my favorite things, Amy. Prepare for some percentages, everyone. Numbers. So, yeah, lots of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so firstly, I heard a murmur from the crowd when Amy said the thirty-one point six percent employment rate. Uh, unemployment rate, right, sorry. I think it's important also to clarify that that does not include people who are on a disability pension, people who are, have caring responsibilities. So that's 31.6% of autistic people who are ready to take a job tomorrow who are unemployed. So unemployment is a massive issue for our community, but it is sadly far from the only one. We here come the stats. Um, you know, mental health. Aut- autistic people in Australia, 87% of autistic people will have a mental illness at some point in their lifetime. Um, 80% of autistic women experience sexual harassment. 60% experience sexual violence. And three quarters experience multiple and repeated incidents of violence or sexual harassment victimisation. Um, For trans and gender diverse autistic people, that rate is even higher. It gets up into the 90s for some of the specific forms of of victimisation, it's horrific. Um, uh, A Swedish study, a huge Swedish study, it was basically the entire population of Sweden. They had two million participants. And they found that autistic people are eight to nine times more likely to die by suicide Compared to the general population, the same study found that we have an average life expectancy of about 54 years. An Australian study that looked at a similar thing actually found that our life expectancy is 35. So, 54, that's the optimistic end. Not one of those statistics, though, is because of autism. You know, we're not being autistic is not going to kill us. We don't die of autism. Being autistic doesn't cause mental illness. The thing that causes all of these awful horrific outcomes is the marginalisation, it's the discrimination, it's the vulnerability, it's the dismal lack of supports and services that we have as autistic people. So it's just, it's a massive indictment on the system in Australia and internationally that we're seeing outcomes like these for autistic people who are about 2.5% of the Australian population. We're a huge group, and we need to be better served by the systems and the services
1: that exist for that purpose. Those statistics are shocking. And I'm 35, so I was like, Ooh, um, <laughs> But I'm also not surprised because, like, Grace, Chloe and I have run into each other at events. And I remember at this festival last year, I was with a friend and they saw Grace and they were so excited. They came over and I was so close to meltdown that, um, and then my brain was like, wait, you've read somewhere that Grace is autistic. And I grabbed Grace and I was like, am I right that you're autistic? And Grace goes, yeah, I'm like, I don't want to be, real. I have to go, I'm going I'm to go have a quiet meltdown. And, and I remember you said back, you're like... Quiet meltdown, what's that? Emma? <laughs> <laughs> and I just felt so much relief because I knew I could leg it, because I, I I had to get back to a quiet space to decompress. Because I do go nonverbal verbal and I had to back up with another thing. And I was so scared because I wasn't talking about being autistic yet, and my PhD hadn't gone through, and I was just, I was just, I felt so vulnerable, and I needed that accommodation. And I have found moments, and it was the same with Chloe, we were at an awards night and we kind of got together and we started talking So we were both about to throw our books and we were talking about like, <laughs> how are we going to get through this? Um, because you, you, you literally have to, you have to treat it like it is. It's something that you, it's life-saving to have accommodations. And Grace, I wanted to ask you, you know, you live with a level of public scrutiny and <laughs> then harassment that would break a neurotypical person, no doubt. So to have that on top of a body and a mind that already needs accommodations that don't exist in structures that aren't made for us as autistic people, how do you decompress and regulate and survive doing what you do? Uh... <laughs>
2: Well, one of the things that autistic people often need is repetitive movement. And I am, as you mentioned earlier, a long-distance runner. And that is a literal process of putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, <laughs> um, and
1: so you're so, so good at it. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: and, 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 and Max, um, I just have to shout out to my fiancé, Max, um, who has been a, a, a literal and, and figurative rock. I say that because if you if you touch his biceps...
1: <laughs> you, you might,
2: yeah, I, I highly recommend that you have some kind of cushioning behind you because you might um, spring backwards. Um, but... You know, it's it's um, authentic bonds, uh, you know, with, with, with people that I can really trust. Um, because as well, um, I'm, not, I'm not very good, you probably noticed this, I'm not very good at what I call the social dressage. I'm more <laughs> of a wild Brumby. I will break down all of your jumps uh, that you put in place. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I, I'm very unfiltered. Um, and again, it's very common for, for autistic people to be that way. And, you know, in, at, at times um, I, I will, you know, um, unwittingly, um, you know, make mistakes and, and um, some, some people punish me for that. Uh, <clears throat> i not going to name news outlets. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Um, and to, so to recover, I also I also have autistic shutdowns, um, where I will go uh, non nonverbal. As a child who grew up without any physical stability, um, because my parents divorced when I was about two years old, um, I again I learned to forge um, my own sort of sense of stability in in those uh, ways that I could. Um, with, doing things like you know, stimming. Um, again, Max's arms are soft so I can stroke Max's <laughs> forearms or my hair does serve. And that, part of the reason why I don't usually wear it down is because Max will eyeball me in the front row and he'll be like, don't touch your hair, don't touch your hair, don't touch your hair. You. <laughs> um, it's the closest thing that I have to stroke. Um, or I, I will um, engage in soothing activities uh, like, um, I really like watching old classic films, um, reading spy novels. I was a big fan of John le Carré. He unfortunately passed away or his nom de plume. Um, that's his nom, nom de plume. David Cornwall was his name. British author of, um, yeah, um, spy, spy novels. Um, really loved Robin Williams. Um, rest in peace, um, and it, yeah, so just familiar things that I find really soothing mm. if I can't speak. Um, I, uh, those, are, those are the comforts that I, that I seek out
1: um, and they, they do a great service. Thank you for sharing. I'm always so amazed when I talk with other autistic people because we do emphasize that there's no one vision of autism. And yet whenever I talk to other autistic people, I'm like, same. Yeah. Same. <laughs> same. Yeah. And um, I just got married last month. And if you went back, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you went back five years ago, my shutdown show was a show called (laughs) Rosehaven, and I then married Luke McGregor, who (laughs) stars in and wrote with his fabulous best friend, who I also love, Celia Piccola. They wrote it together, created it together, and started it together. And so, you know, I'm just saying, talk about a comfort show that, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, but on the topic of acting and particularly because like my oldest child is currently dreaming of growing up to be an actor and that is given, you know, time sensitivity when it comes to creating films and things like that, so important the budgets, everything like that. Like, you've got to be on time, things have to be a certain way, and that would have been a job that I would have thought would be really hard for autistic people. But, Chloe, you are smashing it <laughs> at, as Quinny and giving us representation. Like, there's a date scene, if you haven't seen it yet, where Quinny goes on their first date with this um, awesome, I believe, uh, a woman-identifying character, and I watched it, I cried because I'd never seen the inside of my brain represented on television before. And you act it so beautifully, it's written so beautifully. What's it like being an actor? Like, what kind of supports do you ask for? How do you find the team with that? Like, and maybe not just to target Heartbreak High, but you know, th- this experience as a writer, as an actor, as someone who's absolutely smashing it. How do you do it?
4: You know, there's a lot of people um, in the industry who make films um, who think that autistic people shouldn't be in the industry. Um, Similarly to what you said, because it feels like an industry that would be very against us and that is very... A lot to take on Um, certain singers in particular who wrote certain (laughs) movies. I see. Anyway. um, But I've always thought that autistic people belong in the entertainment industry. Like... We've had to act our entire lives for free. Do you know,
1: I sat on that question. I wanted to ask you this on stage and then I was worried it would be rude but I've always wondered is acting just like because masking do you know
4: what it's so easy because growing up like (laughs) (laughs) acting is a hard job it is a real job but it's like here's the thing growing up even long before I was diagnosed, I used to look to my favourite um, characters and, and humans and um, YouTubers, and I, because I knew that my own personality and my own mind wasn't something that the world wanted, I would just become people that I, that I knew people did like. And I became these people so well that I would have people be like, has anyone ever told you that you're exactly like so-and-so? And I was like, yes, because that is exactly what I am trying to do. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I never had official training because my wife was my official training. Oh, so we're, we're designed for this industry. Yeah. And I would say an easy 85% of this industry is closeted neurodivergent. <laughs> like, easily. You know, I diagnose everyone on every set that I'm on. But, and, and again, similarly to life and society in general, I think what disables us in the entertainment industry is the industry mm. and its refusal... And lack of inclusivity. Um, And when I did Heartbreak, I've been in a lot of jobs before which didn't hire me or or would fire me because of being autistic. And literally not because of accessibility needs, simply because the word was scary for them. Yeah. Um, And when I got Heartbreak, at this point, um, Sia's movie had just come out. So I had been talking about it a lot on TikTok. And so they hired me knowing that I had very, very fiery thoughts about Um, autistic people in the film industry and they still hired me. I don't know why, but they did. And um, the first thing that happened as soon as I got the job, I immediately had calls with the creators and the writers and the directors being like, how can we best accommodate you? And it was that easy. And the accommodations that I asked for didn't cost them any extra money, didn't add any extra time, didn't cause any issues, didn't make it more difficult for anyone. And every other cast member said that, because of the accommodations that they gave me, it like waterfall down onto everyone else and every single person got the accommodations that they asked for too because it's that easy to accommodate people. And autistic people are a goddamn asset to your set.
0: Yeah. So... <laughs> well
1: said. <laughs> As an educator, that point you made about how your accommodations didn't actually cost them anything. This is the same in education, you know, when um, I primarily teach on how teachers can do a better job to support Indigenous students, and the crossover of um, things you can do in the way you create your classroom, the way you introduce and run lessons, the crossover for what's best for Indigenous students, generally speaking, and neurodivergent students, generally speaking, is like this, and it doesn't hurt your neurotypical Students, it actually makes things more comfortable for all of the students, and you get better results for everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost anyone. We're not we're fighting against tradition. We're not fighting against best practice. And it's so refreshing to hear that that's what's also happening in the acting industry. So there you go, Esie, my kid. That's you know maybe you'll have that (laughs) acting career after all. Um, so, we are going to wrap up this section in a moment and go to the questions, which I'm, I forgot to introduce, um, but it is on the board. We're using Slido, and I can see we've had questions coming in from the moment we started. Um, but I did just want to wrap on one last question. So, in I would also like to firstly, just it's a bit of a hype up, um, but in 2022... Grace, Chloe and I all released our first books through mainstream publishing and it was picked up. Our books have all done very well. In the past three years, myself, Dr. Jack and Grace have all done TED Talks. And it would be very easy to label this panel as high-achieving, which I would agree with. But another term that gets thrown around is high-functioning. And this is something I would push back on because I'm not high-functioning. I'm high masking, and in the same way that people often think of me as very feminine, I learned how to behave for the public eye from Disney movies. <laughs> 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 so I have low affect, but everything from the way I style my hair and my makeup to the way I move my face and my hands—Are you getting the Disney vibe? <laughs> um, often, what I'm saying on shows like The Drum as well is quite aggressive. <laughs> people don't realize <laughs> because of the way I deliver it, um, but functioning labels, even things like Asperger's, people go, I think you're really Asperger's. And I like to say that, you know Asperger's is the name of a Nazi? (laughs) You know that's where it comes from, Nazi Germany, Hans Asperger. That's why we don't use that label in Australia. The foundation of where you're going with that is really gross. (laughs) Um, And I think, Jack, you're probably the best person to kind of address from a research and structural standpoint, why functioning labels are problematic? I can do
3: that, Amy. (laughs) Um, Look, there are so many, so many reasons why functioning labels are problematic. The first one is the fact that they don't actually really exist in any formal sense. Pop off. Not 100%. (laughs) They, the idea, like, we've all heard people called high-functioning and low-functioning autistic, never been in the diagnostic manual that we use to diagnose <laughs> conditions like autism, um, never been formalised in any sense. So they just sort of appeared one day. Um, my, actually, my fiancé, who is also an autistic researcher, did lack you know, a serious dive down the rabbit hole trying to figure out where this came from and could not even find the first use of the idea of functioning labels. So they just appeared one day. There's no agreed upon definition for what constitutes high functioning or low functioning. Um, typically, people either use IQ as a cutoff or adaptive behaviour, which is basically like your ability to human to a level that is considered appropriate for your, for your age. Now for both me and my fiancé, if you use the IQ cutoff, we're pretty high functioning. If you use the adaptive behaviour cutoff, we're both low functioning. So it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, But there are also less, I guess, less formal reasons that those labels are problematic. Um, If you call someone high-functioning, that's going to lead then to assumptions about their abilities and what kinds of support they need. Um, Whereas if you call someone low-functioning, that's also going to lead to assumptions about their abilities and what kinds of opportunities you should maybe offer them. And it does a real disservice to the people who are considered high-functioning and the people who are considered low-functioning. And the other thing to think about is, as some of you have talked about already today, functioning isn't static. It changes across our lifespan. Um, It changes from day to day. You know, I think Amy... And Grace have both mentioned the fact that one day they might be, you know, sitting on a panel in the Opera House talking to a crowd of people, and the next day be non-speaking, be unable to to do even the most basic things. Um, so to to label someone as high functioning or low functioning, it assumes that you function at the same level all the time, and that is not the case for any autistic person that I know.
2: Functionality and that concept just seems to be something that the neurotypical world has drummed up Mm -hmm. uh, in relation to their perspective
3: Mm.
1: uh,
2: in accordance of what they think
1: of us. Um, Your ability to perform for capitalism? Yes. how, How... 100%. Because, yeah, yeah. How for, inconvenient you might be
2: for them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, whatever it is. But for, for example, you know, you were talking about masking and acting and those sorts of things. It's not, it's not f- fakery. One of the reasons why, for example, I really enjoyed theatre in school was because I got to preview the room, And preview the lines. (laughs) And, you know, because in a, uh, you know, in an everyday situation, I actually am more nervous and have more anxiety just in an everyday Mm -hmm. conversation because it is multi-directional. This doesn't make me as nervous, even though there's, I don't know, however many of you in the room because you're not all talking at me at once, <laughs> and I don't have to filter all of your thoughts and ideas. It's unilateral.
1: Yeah, yeah. The it's rules not a, here it's not about are
2: a, simple. It's, yes, <laughs> it's not about attention or anything like that. You know, because the the work that I do, for example, is I've got a message that is um, my cause, and I'm passionate about that. And again, passions, autistic (laughs) injustice, that sense of injustice, Um, you know, like I've just a one track mind, monotropism, you know, if I get stuck in a thought process, um, I once described this as if you've ever seen the luge um, at the Olympics, that's what my thought patterns are like. (laughs) I'm off (laughs) and I'm going for
1: gold. (laughs) (laughs) Chloe before we go to Q&A um did did you want to add something on this no pressure just
4: we've all we've all had a little yarn here did you I also have ADHD and I entirely forgot the question
1: (laughs) (laughs) that is totally valid too um Okay, I'm going to go to the questions now, which I can see that you've had some voting here. Okay, there's one here we saw right before we came out on stage, which I wasn't going to ask, but I think... Do we want to ask that one about... Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) So someone has asked, how do you tell the difference? And I will preface, I think this is a problematic question, (laughs) between learned helplessness and something that you genuinely cannot do. Who wants to start on this I think one? Grace
4: had a good answer to this backstage.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I there. Well,
2: it's not that I had a good answer to it. I just said...
1: <laughs> you said how do it's, you tell? Giving, what? <laughs> it's giving autism, Mum, is what we...
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I said something a little bit more blunt. I said, how do you tell that you're a dickhead? <laughs> 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 sorry to have wrote that question
1: like look obviously you know if that's your question you've you've come here and you want to contribute you want to be part of it this question smacks of problematic it gives um that that saying if there's something you want done get a special needs mum to do it and it's like <laughs> you're like i'm an autism mum because i'm a mum and i'm autistic um, I also parent an autistic child, but my child's health and their rights should not be content, and that is also not my identity. Yeah. And um, learned helplessness—the <laughs> only example I can think of—learned helplessness is. Are we not talking, like weaponised incompetence among white men in marriages? <laughs> like. <laughs> Is there a con- Like, can you, can I have anyone else think of a context to like, this question that I'm missing? Is there a more gracious reading of it? Because a lot of people have voted it. So,
3: <laughs> when I hear the term learned helplessness in the context of autism and particularly in the context of autistic children, which I'm like, I'm making an assumption there. Maybe it's about an adult. I don't know. But the first thing that comes to my mind is ABA. Ugh. Like, we put autistic children in therapy that is deliberately designed to teach them learned helplessness we train children to behave in the ways that are considered socially acceptable and that are most convenient for the people around them and in doing that, we teach them to ignore the fact that maybe that's physically painful for them, maybe that's distressing for them, maybe that is like who knows what number of mm. adverse consequences mm. that may be causing for that child. Mm. Um, so, I mean, if something's a genuine need or learned helplessness, uh, has the person been in ABA?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is it, is it, um, is it learned helplessness or is it are you excluding them from access to their needs? Are you excluding them from a space and then blaming them? I have things that I cannot do and one of the most painful, one of the nastiest comments that I get is I forget that someone so smart can be so dumb and when I was single, I can't tell when someone's flirting with me, like I can't, it's invisible to me and I would say to someone, "Hey, is this friendly or flirting?" And they'd be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's very black and white." Yeah, I literally can't fucking tell. <laughs> like, um, I need like, and I've had, and then it becomes dangerous. Like, as an as a femme presenting person, if particularly if you're on a date with a man, or you don't know you're on a date, like you just think you're hanging out, <laughs> and you reject them, that's a dangerous situation. Like, there are situations, but I was single for a few years. Dated, had a great time trying it. Also, it turned out a lot of people I thought were friends wanted to sleep with me. Sorry, I just remembered my kids are in the audience. <laughs> I'm so sorry, babies. <laughs> um, but I, I, I can't overcome that because I am autistic. I, can't, like, I need you to use your words, and then once I have categorized you appropriately, I will read your behaviours in that Mm -hmm. way. But if you are a colleague or someone I think is a friend or you are a stranger and you try to jump boxes without using your words, you're going to scare me. I'm going to feel like you've encroached upon something. I might feel betrayed. It's very distressing. And you get treated like you're lying. Like, no, you're too smart. You knew exactly what was going on. No, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't. Um, That's not learned helplessness. I'm not being cute and coy I genuinely can't see it and there are other social subtleties and it's particularly hard, like if, you know, like I had a lot of loss last year and I remember there were so many situations where people came at me and demanded that I understand what was happening and I just remember saying, like, I'm doing my best.
0: Mm.
1: This is genuinely my best. Like, I know I have all these degrees and I've got certain levels of privilege, but I, I cannot tell what's going on right now and I need you to tell me. And that's not learned helplessness. I'm fucking autistic.
2: <laughs> One of the best definitions of autism that I have ever read in my time, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it because even though I have a reasonably photographic memory, is, <laughs> is that it's, you know, this processing of an extremely large volume of information at any given time through all the the senses. And so picking up on subtext for an autistic person is often really, really difficult to do. And that is a genuine difficulty. And so in, in certain environments... If you are comfortable and your sensory needs are met, you may be better at picking up on subtext. But if your sensory needs are not met, you're going to find it particularly difficult to do that. Mm. Um, You know, for example... I was quite uh, academically strong in school, but then whenever we had to do tests that were outsourced and all of a sudden we were in a different environment, Mm. I couldn't perform well. And I never knew why, because obviously I didn't get a diagnosis of autism until um, much later on after I'd finished all of my schooling. But it was because, again, I'm really sensitive to things like clocks ticking or, um, you know, all of a sudden we were all the... um, Uh, peer groups were amalgamated and it was different circumstances. The rules change. uh, Sorry? The rules change. All all the parameters changed. And again, it might seem like small, subtle differences um, to the PNT, to the neurotypical world, but to an autistic person, those things thwart your ability to even function at a base level. And, you know, things like, um, like... The, the, the food that um, I eat, you know, I eat the same thing every day and I, I have restrictive eating patterns because I can't tell when I'm full or hungry. And it's not a preference. It's that I have, you know, like um, difficulty with proprioception and things like that. And they those things then appear in, the, um, in autistic people as things like eating disorders. And that's the level at which these things
1: affect people. Yeah, yeah, this is what, just don't comment on people's bodies. Like when people say, oh my God, you're looking really good. <laughs> and what they actually mean is, you're thinner, which meet Eurocentric beauty standards. What I hear is, oh shit, because I, I can't tell when I'm hungry. Um, so I have to like have alarms and stuff to remind me to eat. And I think, oh no, I've lost track. I, it, it, my dysfunction has become visible in my body. Um, and just, just don't comment on people for like it is, like, you know. Um, so... Um, question for Jack. What are your thoughts on the correlation of being gender-fluid, queer and autistic? Do you have any? It's a thing.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's, it's very much a thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, autistic people... The numbers vary, but sort of somewhere between probably about 4 or 5% up to 15% of autistic people are trans or gender divergent in some way. Um, Probably somewhere around about 40 to 50% of autistic people are non heterosexual. So, like gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, somewhere in that spectrum that isn't straight. there's a lot of different sort of conjecture about why that might be. Um, I haven't come across anything that I find really convincing yet. <laughs> but I think the, the sort of... <laughs> the, the explanation that sort of seems to be like leading the pack is the idea that um, basically autistic people are less, um, less likely to conform to social pressures around things like sexuality and gender. You know, gender is a social construct um, and autistic people, maybe we're just less likely to conform to that social construct and more likely to be comfortable with sitting in the places that are outside of those boxes. Um, I think that probably makes a lot of sense. I don't know that it explains quite how Quite, quite how prevalent it is because mm. um, I mean in the in the neurotypical population trans identities are something like 0.1% or like it's I, I'm not 100% sure don't quote me on that but it's, lower. it's significantly higher in the autistic community and I don't know that that can be explained just as a result of the social conformity. I, I do wonder if there's something more to it there in sort of like a biological sense, um, but we don't know
1: it yet. Fascinating. Um, okay, so we only have three minutes left and one of the questions we got is, what is your favourite thing about being autistic? So keep in mind, we only have three minutes left. I'll go first. My favorite thing about being autistic is it's absolutely what makes me such a great researcher. I'm a gun at recognizing patterns, um, at analyzing, knowing good questions to ask. And it's absolutely a strength for me when it comes to being an academic. And I think
4: it's really cool to be autistic.
1: Chloe, what's your favorite (laughs) part of being
4: autistic? Our brains are made of magic. And when we're put into the environments where that magic can flourish, It is going to be the coolest freaking thing ever.
1: Grace, what's your favourite part of being autistic? Uh,
2: The autistic community. Mm. Um, The friendships, the bonds. Um, One of my best autistic friends is sitting directly in front of me, John. Um, John is here and, um, of course these three women beside me um, but my best friend Dom as well who I've known since we were both seven years old so we have 21 years of autistic friendship Um, we live in our own symbiotic universe of neurodivergence Um, sometimes we don't even need to talk we just bond Um, but yeah also just the the hyper focus the attention to detail the passion the autistic sense of injustice um, the you know just that that magic that you spoke of as well Um, yeah
1: (laughs) Jack, what's your favourite part of being autistic
3: yeah I I don't know if I can top that Amy
1: (laughs) exactly what you said
3: about uh, being a researcher I think I am definitely a better researcher because of being autistic the attention to detail absolutely all the way you know don't send me something to edit if you do not want every full (laughs) stop and comma chat (laughs) But also the autistic community, absolutely. Finding the autistic community after I was identified as autistic. um, And I also, I want to comment too that um, self-identification as autistic is a valid thing. You don't have to be formally diagnosed. But yeah, just the, it's such a supportive and wonderful, inclusive, diverse community, um, you know, We've got everyone from people who are non-speaking, people who have, you know, really complex needs, who are still 100% valid, important, respected members of our community and should be more broadly in the general community. Um, you know, it's, it's just such a lovely community. There's a place for everyone. Um, and, you know, you're not going to get along with every autistic person because you're autistic, but chances are you're going to find an autistic person who you can form that bond with. And it's, um, it's, just, it's been absolutely life-changing for me to have that connection to the community.
1: It's fantastic. So on that note, I would just encourage everyone here who is autistic, loves autistic people, or thinks they're autistic... Please keep in mind that autistic made and led resources are the best resources. That you should be wary of autistic services, shows, and organisations that are not run or informed by autistic people. um, And that all experiences and iterations of autism whether that's speaking or non-speaking whether you're able to come and sit on stages or whether you know you need different accommodations are valid and magical natural and deserve to be part of this society so i would like to thank everyone for coming and please join me in thanking our phenomenal panel chloe grace and jack We did touch on some difficult subjects today, so if it has raised any difficult feelings or big feelings for you, please reach out for support. And on that note, we are going to leave you. Love you and leave you, but thank you so much for coming.
0: Watch this talk and others from All About Women 2023 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.